There's no doubt that we live in a very polar time and not just domestically, but also geopolitically. And that can be seen by last week's or a few days ago, the Putin-Biden summit, which was held in Switzerland, I think. And uh, basically the, f- the most popular picture was basically the photo shoot with the foreign secretaries of each nation with Biden and Putin. And that picture, you can see that both of them look very uncomfortable. They're basically, it looks like, like two fa- divorced fathers just coming back to a family reunion or just a reunion or gathering of some sort. And, uh, but we, uh, but seriously, the, the outcome of that summit was really nothing substantial, which is not, not a surprise given the uh, American-Russian um, relationship. But CBS, I think this is very interesting. And I think, I hope that provided with the facts that this can be a major, major possibility that Russia and America could for some period of time see each other in each other one commonality, which is the fear of Chinese development and influence. And I think when I first told this to you, you were kind of, uh, well, you questioned it first of all. I, I don't know if you were baffled or confused, but well, first, what do you think? What did you think of that initially? Well, to be honest with you, I was a bit, uh, I was confused at first because when you look at current day relationships between Putin and the Biden administration and just, uh, you know, US Russia relations in the past, you wouldn't automatically assume them to be allies under really any circumstance so I was a bit confused when you first told me about this but when we actually sat down and talked about it 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 made a little more sense yeah um well what I'm going to rehash basically review what I said to you so basically to all the viewers I know that this based on the title that it will be um, like very confusing and uh, like very out of the ordinary, like random kind of. And uh, it might be deemed like, I don't know, stupid or whatever, but here's the, here's, here are the facts. You, you, uh, these are based on certain videos and articles. Articles from, let's see. Uh, Yeah, articles from Responsible Statecraft, The Washington Post, and Think, which is from uh, NBC News. And, and there's also a couple of videos, interesting videos uh, on it. So basically, in Central Asia, which is basically Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, all the stands, like around that region, which is, if you, I'm going to describe this, it's northeast of Iran, 
up north, well, basically, I think Afghanistan is part of this, but it's basically where Afghanistan is, kind of close to Pakistan. It's west of China and south of Russia. Um, it's, it's around that area. And in that area, actually, that those countries are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And also um, another uh, union, which is... Um, I think you know, Sebastian, the, Eura- the Eurasian Economic Union. Yeah, the EAU. Yeah, which is an agreement, I think, from Russia, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's a, it's a collection of nations in that region of Eastern Europe and Central Asia to, you know, more or less create uh, economic stability in the region. I, I looked this up before we got on. It also has nations like Cuba and Iran as like observers, just as an example. Yeah. So, yeah. And those countries is where China is in putting in factories, putting money in as investments. Basically, that's what the essence of the Belt and Road Initiative is, is to put a foot economic foothold in those countries and gain, I don't know, like some trade advantage or some influence over those regions. But also the Russians um, are, I think, militarily and politically are more in that region, right? And historically, China believes that they have historical claim over certain territories, Taiwan, um, the Koreas, Japan, the Southern, uh, Southern Asia, and even, yes, yeah, Central Asia. But also, if you look at it historically, the Russian Empire, and not the Soviet Union, well, the Soviet Union included, but also the Russian Empire, which is like the imperialistic power. It's like the British Empire, but of course, Russian, had some uh, claim over that. So, but here's the thing. The economies of Russia and China vary very differently. China, as seen by its investments in other countries, it's progressing tenfold. It's incredible. It's 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 incredible how they're technologically, industrially, and economically advancing. So, but on the other hand, Russia... Their economy is stagnated. They have most of Russia is basically a winter wasteland, like Siberia. They're not like the US or China, where it's abundant in natural resources. I think most of their exports, I th- I believe, or they have a lot of oil. And um, that's basically the only major thing that they have economically. So this is a major problem. And I think Vladimir Putin really uh, knows this or the Russian government, the Kremlin. And that's, it's an indication that Russia is not a global power anymore. It's it's still a big problem. They're they're still a power because of nukes. But really because of agreements or treaties, just having nukes, really isn't uh, like the way to be a power. There's a certain, there's like certain elements to be like a great 
superpower. The elements are, you have to have a lot of natural resources. So let's say the United States. We yeah. are still a superpower because we have a lot of natural resources. If you look around, it, like for the people who travel around the United States, there's so many like biomes, forests, trees, whatever. There's you know, deserts too, but lakes, all that. It's so abundantly, like it has a lot of natural resources. We have a lot of oil. We have a lot of trees. We have a lot of steel. We can make stuff. If we wanted to, we could be the biggest industrial power, which we were after the, after the Second World War. And that's one essence. The other is, um, well, of course, military, not only the size. It doesn't, even if you have a lot of uh, stuff, like military, like personnel, ships, tanks, and all that, that doesn't really matter if they're all in the United States. In order to be that superpower, they have to be in some, in areas globally that has some effect on other countries. So like the military bases, we have so many military bases in Europe, Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East, and Asia. That is the indication, one of the biggest indications of being a power is to influence other countries' foreign policy because we are there militarily. And the other one, I, this is from a video that I, I will um, try to find, but I think the other one is, I guess, stability. Of course, it's like having good governments, good laws and all that. But those are the big things of a major superpower. Let's look at Russia. They don't really have a lot of natural resources. And in terms of government and stability, it's not really that good. So their only option to flex their supposed, like this picture of superiority is militarily. They have the nukes. But also, they're lining their troops along the border, the border between Europe and Russia, which is they are lining up their personnel, personnel, troops along the border, especially and notably Ukraine, right? And also, I think Belarus, is that if that's how you pronounce it, and also the yeah. Baltic states, which if no one knows about them, they're Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania basically around there. And they're trying to flex their power to us, trying to say that they're kind of challenging us per se, because they're putting us into a, a weird position. And that's what Biden is, is trying to solve. And also the other way they're flexing their power is the cyber attacks, notably the one, the cyber attacks and the influence in our elections like 2016 um, and with the election of Donald Trump and everything. That's really how they're trying to play with us per se. They're trying to like say, tell the world that, hey, we are still the major, uh, we're still the, the major nation, the major super, uh, major power that we are. But in reality, it's, it's not really they're not going to progress up to where the U.S. and China are. 
And to go back to to what I to my hypothesis, since China is progressing rapidly and influencing so many like territories around their area, this is a big problem for Russia in a term in in like a foreign policy and international standpoint. Because I mean, uh, you could say like that's the rule of like nations. Um, when looking back, if there's a neighbor who is more powerful than you, you are more inclined, and if they're like an ally or whatever, you're they're more you're more inclined. If you're Russia, the weaker power, you will be a junior power because you're relying on China too much. And if China succeeds in their plan, then we will see a global, insanely global. Chinese superpower that will have all these resources and everything, and Russia, who needs a lot of those resources, depending on China. And I know Vladimir Putin is a very nationalistic, very prideful person. He would never, I assume, but this is mo- very likely, he would never be obsequious to someone else, and that is why he wanted. To, he wants to flex. Russian power to show that Russia it's its own independent uh, nation that can still influence global politics, but that won't be the case if China is the major player. And also, um, there's this like myth. It's like a myth, but there's this speculation going on of how China would annex Siberia, which looking looking at it, it doesn't really make sense. Because,、um, well, China will wouldn't declare war on Russia over that territory, because I mean Russia still has its nuclear capability. But yeah, besides that, if we, based on those trends, it's really not, and based on who what who the Russians are,、um, I think it, it will be. Disadvantageous to for Russia to be、uh, to rely on China, and so because of that, I think the United States and Europe momentarily should、um, basically begin a relationship or begin talks with the Russian government and. Talk about this, basically what I'm trying to say. And it's difficult. It's so difficult, and I there's a high possibility that this will fail, because Russia, and Europe, and the United States, they have the worst relationship, one of the worst. And I think there's a lot of treachery behind it. And I'm not saying that the U.S. and Europe should. Bowed, bend the knee to Russia, like how Trump did with Putin. Um, but I don't think the United States, along with its allies, could afford to deal with the Chinese-Russian alliance. I don't think there is a Chinese-Russian alliance to like. I don't think that there were, that alliance would be strong enough because of the. Things that I just said, but um, 
if we manage successfully to bring Russia into quote unquote our side, then the major power struggle will be shifted so that instead of like basically two on two, it would be three on one. And this, uh, this is not like a major like war that I'm talking about. I'm just saying this is like a major like let's say economic international competition. So yeah, that's basically the gist of what I'm trying to uh, say. And I think I will post some like videos and links to the uh, articles and all that. So yeah, that's basically the gist. See you, well, yeah. yeah. So I I think this could go a number of ways. So this could either I I feel if if this ever becomes a major issue uh, that eventually needs to seriously or or carefully be looked at and or considered. We're definitely going to have to keep a close watch on Vladimir Putin because let me think this could go a number of certain ways. Like, let's say that you're right about Putin uh, fearing Chinese economic expansion in Central Asia, where Russia has had a lot of economic uh, influence for um for the past few years. Let's say that Putin does fear something like that. There are certain prerequisites that, in my opinion, need to be met. There are certain prerequisites and conditions and things of that nature that need to be met. I know that in 2014, the US imposed sanctions on Russia, I'm pretty sure for the invasion of Ukraine I could, I have to check that out again, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was for. And I'm assuming those sanctions are still there. And if not those sanctions in particular, the US still has sanctions on Russia. So what would be, what negotiations would have to take place in favor of the Russians for them to even consider joining this deal? And I also understand, secondly, I also understand that, um, Putin and G don't have the best relationship, but well, they claim to have the best relationship. But I think there's a lot of speculation that they're it's not really that it's not really as great as they claim it claim it to be. Yeah, they claim to have the best relationship, but yeah, there's probably some sort of friction and or tension there. But like, would what reasons outside of his uh, fears would Putin? be willing to at least accept some sort of help from the West when, as far as I know, the Russia and China have, um, for, have done or have taken some necessary steps to more or less keep um, the West and powers like the United States and the European Union out of their own uh, in, um, internal affairs, just as an example. So would what, what would Putin be willing to do in a situation such as this? And lastly, would Putin actually try to find some sort of negotiation or come up with some sort of compromise 
with the Chinese? Because I know earlier when we were talking about it, we brought up the China's Belt and Road Initiative and then uh, Putin's uh, like Eurasian Economic Union. So I, I saw an article that came out a while back and it talked about how they were looking to at least try to see if they could link the two projects so that there could be some form of economic cooperation. So at least both nations have some uh, economic influence in the region so that at least both leaders are happy and they both benefit, you know, without having to look for assistance from the United States. So at, at this point, it's really just a matter in my opinion, at least, I think it's really just a matter of what Putin is willing and looking to do moving forward. And based on that, I have no idea. Honestly, like, first it's hard. When you say that, oh, can Putin negotiate? I probably, with the West, I probably wouldn't say yes or be optimistic of an actual, an outcome which Putin does, because honestly, Putin, like I said, is a very, well, based on the facts now, Putin doesn't really like the West. But it depends on, I guess, um, I mean, you said the cooperation, like the Eurasian Economic Union and the development road should like be combined in a sense to favor both nations. I mean, if that happens, then this entire thing is thwarted. It's thwarted. But I hope, honestly, ugh. this is all, I can't really say a definitive outcome. I'm just saying, oh, I just noticed all oh, these things here and there. It's like, oh, because these are things are happening, there might be a possibility, emphasis on possibility that this thing might occur, which is Russia kind of distancing itself from China. But um, what I can say now is that all we can do is kind of like hope, put belief in our international, uh, both uh, on our political figures in the international sphere, our president and uh, secretary of state and the ambassadors when yeah. they get uh, appointed and accepted. Yeah, because, I don't know, I, I remember watching a video a while back, at least when Putin first took office back, back in the, as president, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and, and even a little bit before that. Putin has always, at least from what I know, has been very skeptical of um, Western democracies, and he's always tried to limit the spread of Western democracy and actual and Western culture and influence in, I guess you could say the Middle East or in Eastern Europe as, you know, it, uh, such influence such as that started to, I guess you could say, find or um, encroach upon Russia's borders in a sense. Um, yeah, so that that's that's the that's the mindset i'm going with here and i don't know if his approach to foreign policy or his approach to the united states has changed at 
somewhat since since then. So that's why I'm leaning towards more of he'd rather, I don't know, probably try to find some sort of way to cooperate with China. I, I feel like he'd have to be very desperate in, in order to, you know, try to uh, form a, an economic deal with the United States, at least at this point. I'd feel like he'd have to be extremely desperate. I wouldn't bet. Uh, I w- what I'm saying is uh, I'm leaving it up to the leaders because like right now we don't really have any influence. Of course, we're 16. I mean, we should be outside. <laughs> but, um, but this is something that is very interesting. But in the general sense, this is like geopolitics in its nature i mean it's not it's it's supposed to be so hard because in this is basically right they say the age of empires is done but that's not really the case human the human condition is supposed to be repeated it's supposed to be inevitable well not supposed to be it, it is inevitable and when there are always an exception because in after world war ii the world was based on what America did. It was basically America controlled and with a little influence on the Western allies had, well, after the, specifically after the collapse of the Soviet Union, for a couple of decades, the Americans decided the international order, basically, because it was the most powerful nation. Yeah. In that period of peace, we believed that we were invincible and that no dictatorship or empire or imperial power can emerge. Well, that's just fantasy. There are in, throughout history, I know there's no, there, had never, there has never been an international order like, uh, like the 1980s, 1990s, ever before in human history. But that doesn't mean that there are a group of people who can rise up and create this sort of institution or country that could, that ha- that can wisely take over or put gain influence around uh, for, from other countries. This is this is a very dangerous thing, because well, first we don't want war, but secondly, it it's a challenge and. I think we're living in a time when I guess reality is like reality is in, in a sense um, that empires can form again. And that's just the, the way that I guess human civilization works. I don't know. I can't really, I don't know how to, else to describe it, but, but that doesn't mean that we should be pessimistic, but it's just a new challenge. And when I see new challenges this... arrive, we face them. And, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, what I was going to say was I see this as uh, I see what you were saying as some what are some form of, I guess you could say, American exceptionalism, uh, somewhat of a belief that, you know, the U.S. is different, inherently different from other nations and because of that reason as long as the u.s is there as long as u.s democracy is there and as long as the united states government continues to 
uh, exist and succeed that, you know, as you said, authoritarian regimes and empires won't rise. But, you know, as you said before, that's not the case. You know, nations rise and fall. And, and what I'm really just trying to say here is that uh, the concept of uh, American exceptionalism in and of itself, as you said before, it's not really um, true, but it's it's like it, we need to adapt, essentially. That's what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I think I will say this confidently. Empire, empires, countries fall. And I will guarantee you America will fall at some point, but I don't think it's now. But if the general public of America, if Americans can say that, hey, we are unstable, because we are, we are very unstable, and that we may fall, we might. It's a great responsibility. It might be now, it might be in 10 years or 20. But if we say that, if we know that is true, then we can do something about it. That's, that's easy to acknowledge. It's not easy to do, but it's easy to acknowledge. And I firmly believe that 2020, the 20s, is not our downfall. And I don't think America will, despite probably popular opinion, that America will not crumble like the Roman Empire. But we're on a kind of decline. We are kind of going into that state. But we should... First, acknowledge that, then we go find, like cooperatively, uh, cooperatively find those solutions so that we could last another th 100, 200, 1,000 years. Well, 1,000 is a stretch, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So that it, we can make it to the next decade or century. Yeah. It's just a matter of being able to adapt, you know, not just sticking to the same you know, whatever it takes, you know, to just make sure that the U.S. is still, you know, the U.S. So I don't think, yeah, America will not last forever. But because there will be at some point, not I'm not saying soon, but there will be at some point where, I don't know, change happens because change always happens. Cosmocracy comes along. I have no idea. Probably like anything could happen. America might fall or a nation replace them or replace it or something. Or I'm just saying like change happens. But if we want to delay that, then what matters what we do today will matter, what matter, will matter, will like greatly matter. And we must do what we have to do to make sure that our lifespan is like an extra 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years. And yeah, I think if you don't have any uh, other thoughts, then I think this is a good way to end, end it off. Yeah, that's all, yeah, it's all for me. Yeah. Uh, I plead you lis listeners to, uh, to basically give your thoughts, uh, see what you think, because uh, it will be great, uh, greatly appreciated. But uh, this is Hail to the Pod, and we're signing off.